Welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Crawley, and there is only one stat that we need to get to to start the podcast, and that is the Case-Shiller monthly data. And this, of course, is from April, and the number was kind of big. In fact, it was a record, and it was a headline that I saw across, well, the country. Every newspaper that I saw, this was on the front page. Because like I said, record number, a little bit unexpected. I mean, it was higher than they were expecting, but this is what we've been seeing for months now. So not all that surprising in the grand scheme of things. So what was the number? 14.6%. That according to the, this is this is a long word, long, long phrase. The S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller U.S. National Home Price NSA Index. Whew. I could not say that three times fast. Don't even ask. Now, I thought there was a Dow Jones in there somewhere. Oh, no, no. It's the S&P Dow Jones indices. And so this is just one of them. So that's just one of the names of one of them. I guess they didn't want to throw Dow Jones in there. That that, that would have been ridiculous. The, you know, 12 words is enough. 14 would have been just a little bit too much. So 14.6 yearly gains in April. That is up from the previous month in which it was just a pathetic 13.3%. And all of their indexes were up pretty much across the board. The 10-city composite annual increase came in at 14.4%, up from 12.9% the previous month. And the 20-city composite posted a 14.9% year-over-year gain, up from 13.4% in the previous month. These numbers are truly extraordinary. And that's not me. That is Craig Lazara, the Managing Director and Global Head of Index Investment Strategies at S&P Dow Jones Indices, who said in a statement, quote, April's performance was truly extraordinary. The 14.6% gain in the national composites is literally the highest reading in more than 30 years of S&P Core Logic Case Schiller data. And what's kind of fascinating is the numbers get even more impressive when you look at the hot markets, not temperature wise, even though Phoenix and Seattle right now are very hot, but they're hot for another reason, their housing market. Phoenix led the way with 22.3% year over year price increases, followed by San Diego that was up 21.6 and Seattle at 20.2% year-over-year gains. Uh, Charlotte, I believe, was four or five. They had record numbers as well. So, yeah, go Tar Heel State. But here's what's kind of amazing about this. Case Schiller's not alone. In fact, their number was lower than another report that came out at exactly the same time, 9 a.m. yesterday morning. The monthly report from the FHFA's Home Price Index showed record months, or I should say record data, on a monthly basis and an annual basis. So like I said, this number was bigger than Case Shiller. It was at 15.7%. Year over year, that's what the FHFA home price index. But what was actually more impressive was the month over month game. Now, it doesn't get as much of attention because, you know, when you have a a double digit number in a headline, it looks that much more impressive. But the month over month gain or the month over month gain in April 2021 was 1.8%. Now, if you annualize that, 
That's like 21%. (laughs) That's not a particular hot market. That is nationwide. That is just crazy growth. Just, Just nuts. Dr. Lynn Fisher, the deputy director of the Division of Research and Statistics for the FHFA, said home prices recorded another monthly and annual record in April. She said this unprecedented price growth persists due to strong demand bolstered by still low mortgage rates and too few homes for sale. And so what she's doing is she's pointing out, as many others are, that what is causing this home price appreciation, sure, low mortgage rates are helping, but really this is an inventory level. But there's no doubt that these prices are freaking a lot of people out. And so it's kind of funny because, so there was a piece over at Barron's by Kevin Erdman. And it's a great piece. Highly recommend you read it. Once again, I have a companion newsletter to this podcast in which the link for the article is there. You know what I should start doing? I should start taking the articles and data that I talk about and link to it in the podcast. I think I'm going to start doing that to make it easier for everyone. Because that's really the point. I I want you guys to see this data that I am referring to. Because I only get to a little bit of it. There's always a lot more, um, especially with some of these op-eds that we talk about. There's a lot of great info, a lot of great arguments being made in these op-eds. Now, Kevin Erdman's piece, what he's talking about is inventory levels. And I do want to dive into it, but it's funny because now all of a sudden everyone's freaking out about the home prices. Oh my gosh, they're so high. And so all the crash bros, you know, these are the people who are always fear-mongering. They're always convinced that, oh, you know, in 2008, the housing market crashed. So it's going to happen again, not realizing that a black swan event doesn't usually repeat itself, hence the black swan event. But because of that, everyone's convinced that the next bubble is going to be housing again, which makes no sense. Very rarely do you see one sector of the market collapse, causing what we saw in 2008. So most people are focusing on that sector. So it's always a sector you're not paying attention to. I know I've mentioned this before, but you know, corporate debt is something that I think people need to be looking at. That's far more worrisome than what's happening in the housing sector. But it's funny because for the longest time, and I see this on Facebook, people will be posting about this, people were making a big deal about foreclosures because of these forbearance programs. And we had you know millions of people in these forbearance programs. And everyone said, uh-uh, uh, th- th- this is artificially you know, stimulating the housing market and all these foreclosures, all these people leave forbearance, they're gonna get foreclosed on and we're gonna see a crash like 2008. And I was like, no, look at the data. That's not even close to what's happening. A lot of people voluntarily went into forbearance programs because they could. There was no penalty. I mean, if someone says, hey, you don't have to make your mortgage payment for three months during an economic downturn, most people are gonna choose that option. And a lot of people did. And then what happened as they got to the point of the program ending, they left. And so now you're seeing, we talked about this yesterday with the data coming out on Monday. We're almost at the point where less than 2 million people are in these programs. And when you combine that with the data that only 1.7 million people throughout the country are underwater in their homes, not the foreclosure crisis that everyone was projecting. And so what happened is all these crash bros are like, "Uh uh-oh, I guess the uh, foreclosure thing's not going to happen. So now they're moving on to, well, the home prices have gotten so ridiculous. The housing market has to crash. And well... Sorry to make it simple, but no, it doesn't. Now, first of all, 
and this is a point that everyone needs to make every time they write an article about this, is that this is not 2008. The conditions are nothing close to 2008. One, lending standards have actually gotten stricter over the last year. They haven't gotten looser. They're not trying to get more money to people that maybe can't make their mortgage payments. No, they're actually making it more difficult to get a mortgage. In fact, some people in Washington probably aren't too happy about that. And that's why we've heard that there are ideas out there in which they may start trying to create programs to help people who cannot qualify because lending standards are getting stricter. Demand has only gotten stronger. As we've all seen over this last year, demand has actually gotten stronger in the housing market, which is contrary to what happened in 2008 when what happened was is the demand started dissipating. And then occupancy levels, which plays into what happened with regards to inventory. Occupancy levels right before the crash had reached highs, or excuse me, I should say, yeah, highs that we had not seen in a long, long time. So you had a lot of homes available elevated prices, zero to no lending standards, and boom, you get a crash. Well, none of those are characters of this current housing market. And like I said, it really is all about inventory. Erdman notes that many blame the high occupancy levels in 2008 as evidence of overzealous building during the last boom. But he says, quote, timing is key here. Decades of experience tell a clear story. Months of inventory is mostly a function of sales rather than builder speculation. When sales are strong, homes are turning over and months of inventory stay low. When sales quickly decline, builders tend to be left with unexpectedly high inventory. And so kind of what happened is you had builders who really respond to, I mean, it really is all about demand. And that's why it's kind of interesting what's happening right now. And a lot of that has to do with commodity prices, especially lumber, is that lumber prices just shot through the roof and builders were like, eh, well, maybe we're not going to build. Now, under normal circumstances, they'd be building like crazy because of the demand. So lumber has kind of corrupted this normal relationship, but normally it's driven by demand. Builders aren't just going to build on speculation. They're going to build based on what's actually happening. And so what happened is that demand just disappeared. And so we had a lot of inventory, high occupancy levels, which leads to, unfortunately, a crash, especially with elevated prices. But going forward, Erdman notes that it's really going to be a lot of it's going to be impacted by the Fed. He says there's little reason to expect housing demand to collapse. If it does, Urban argues it would come at the hands of the Federal Reserve, pointing out that federal monetary and credit policies meant to create or accept a sharp drop in demand. And even if federal officials intend for housing construction to collapse, which you'd think they'd be doing the opposite, history suggests that a market contraction would push new sales down deeply for an extended period of time before prices relent. And it's a really good article, and I highly recommend you guys check it out because he does explain how resilient the housing market is. And even after 2008 and the crash of 2008, that the housing market actually bounced back pretty quickly. I mean, sure, you have pockets where things just got way too hot and the markets just collapsed. But on a national perspective, the market was pretty resilient. And he also also argues that the Federal Reserve kind of left home buyers out to buy Uh, which is unlikely to happen again. And so it's 
there's nothing similar about what's happening right now as to what happened in 2008. Now, when I say the Fed, I do also want to make, you know, clarify, because there's been talk about the Fed sort of maybe pulling back on their mortgage-backed security purchases, and maybe they could raise rates. To be, you know, to be fully honest, I mean, that's probably something the Fed should be looking at doing, because what we're seeing right now is we have low inventory, crazy high demand. And so raising rates, pulling back on purchases of mortgage-backed securities will probably raise rates, and it will push some people out of the market, which will lower demand and let things kind of reach an equilibrium before the Fed can then decide what they want to do. And the hope is, is that the economy will recover, people will make more money, and despite rates being higher, they'll be able to afford a home, and then they'll go out and be able to buy that house. But I don't think it's a bad idea. I don't want to confuse people into thinking that what I'm talking about, the Fed needs to keep doing what it's doing right now. If they were to pull back on purchases of mortgage-backed securities and raise rates maybe a little sooner than some think, I don't think that would be the end of the world, especially with the inventory levels and builders just not building. So I don't think it would be the end of the world. But sorry, Crash Bros. It doesn't look like we are anywhere close to uh, a housing crash like 2008. Now, does that mean that we couldn't see a, a, a situation in which home prices fall a little bit? No, I mean, it's possible. But once again, the projections from a year-to-year perspective are still positive. So maybe for the next couple of months, we see double-digit growth, and then maybe a month it drops a little bit. But over the course of the next year, they're still projecting positive growth in the housing sector. Now, we've gone a little long on this episode, which is never a bad thing, but I do want to end on a positive note, which is consumer confidence. Jumped in June, according to the latest data from the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index. The main index now stands at 127.3. That is up seven points since May. And Lynn Franco, Senior Director of Economic Indicators at the Conference Board, said in a statement, consumer confidence increased in June and is currently at its highest level since the onset of the pandemic's first surge in March of 2020. So that's great news. Uh, It should also be noted that Joe Weisenthal over at Bloomberg also had a good point with regards to inflation, saying that while the media and economists, you know, are obsessed with this inflation debate, he points out consumers are not tweeting inflation fear mongering, not changing the public's perception that things are getting better and better. And that's a positive note. So we're going to end it right there. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Enjoy your Wednesday. And as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.